0: The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this episode, I've got a special guest and memory to commemorate. No, it's not that we've made it to season two. It's 50 years since we first landed humans on the moon with the Apollo missions led by NASA. So my guest, who I'm delighted to have, is Dr. Ed Hoffman, NASA's first ever chief knowledge officer. Ed's responsibility was to work with leaders of all industries, academia, professional associations, and other government agencies To develop NASA's capabilities in program management and engineering skills, Dr. Hoffman had written numerous journals and articles, including a book called Shared Voyage, Learning and Unlearning from Remarkable Projects. But even this caused a little bit of trouble inside NASA.
1: The NASA folks gave me problems with that word, because at the time, this is way back there. They said, there is no such thing as unlearning. I, well, and that's I said, I that's the problem we have here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
0: And this shared interest in unlearning is really what brought us both together. I was speaking at the Project Management Institute's executive event, which Ed is an advisor for. And it brought us together to work together over the last few years, helping people from all industries and companies learn to unlearn. But everyone wants to know, and I certainly did, how does someone get started with NASA?
1: The starting point, so I'm a guy that never expected to be at NASA. I grew up in Brooklyn. I have trouble screwing light bulbs. (laughs) You know, I'm one of the, I struggle through math. I missed about two weeks in grade school with the Hong Kong flu sometime in the 60s, and I missed fractions, and I never recovered. (laughs) It, you're laughing, but it was a psychological. I tried to learn math yeah. by guessing, and I would do lousy, and I, it never kind of changed. So I never expected going to NASA. I was doing my studies in the early 80s at Columbia University. I was going for my doctorate, organizational behavior, social psychology kinds of stuff, studying leadership competencies and teams. My professor was very close to it. It was Warner Burke. And about three months into the program, I go up to him and said, I really need to have an internship because I don't want to drive a cab. And <laughs> he, he looked at me like, what are you talking about? I'd read an article that day in the New York Times about all these PhDs who didn't have practical experience. So yeah. they were driving cabs. <laughs> and so, so I was telling him I have no, uh, I get lost driving around. And that, he that's said, probably no, why you have so many great conversations in cabs in New York yeah, at the time. I love, right? I love, you know, driving with people and all that kind of stuff. So he mentioned we're working with Citibank, with British Airways, with NASA. He said, where would you like to do an internship? I immediately said, NASA. He said, you know, bad choice. I said, why is that a bad choice? And he said, they'll never hire you. He said, it'll be a great six months. It'll be great on the resume, but they will never hire you. Interesting. And yeah, my response was, thank you for that (laughs) vote of confidence. He he laughed. He said, no, no. He says, obviously, you're a top student, or I wouldn't be considering this, but you're a psychology guy. It's an engineering tech firm. You'd be starting at Washington. They don't like to hire people into the head office. They want you to start in the field. So they'd never hire you. You probably should go to Citibank, because you'd be able to get work immediately. And I said, Citibank, to me, was number three, because- I'm thinking British Airways. I'm thinking about flying. Right. Yeah, this is what you do when you're in your 20s, right? So I started an internship at NASA because I went up and said I needed to get some experience. And I found it just a delightful, wonderful place. It was hard work, but it was kind of like a fantasy world. I love the people. I don't have enough smarts. I don't have the innate ability to understand how things fly or how you design things or how you set up equipment. So I look at engineers and the scientists there as heroes. And I think they always picked when I worked with them that it wasn't Ed the psychologist trying to figure them out or build teams or set up processes, that that was part of what I was doing to improve things. But I think they recognized that I held them in esteem and I loved working in that environment. And I always loved working with engineers because I thought they've really changed the world for the better.
0: Well, what's interesting to me is you share that story though, but Around this time, what might be common knowledge today was having these sort of cross-functional teams, different makeups of people in teams is sort of the norm of what great innovation is. But I sense around this time, we're thinking, oh, no, just engineers. We just need engineers. They'll figure out these tough problems. And you're sort of bringing that new skill to the mix to help, I guess, help them become a better team. What were some of the things you learned as a result of that?
1: You know, one of the things, I'll tell you, I know you like stories. So one of the turning point stories I had was shortly after I did my internship. So I started in about August. And at the end of the year, one of the great things, NASA is an organization that I feel is always, the leadership has always believed in young people and learning and giving opportunities. And we had a deputy administrator at the time. This was probably 1983. His name was Hans Mark. His senior leaders would call him Hansi. I would always call him Dr. Mark. And he was just an intimidating guy with a dramatic accent. He came from Austria. Big guy, must have been like six foot four. And he was the number two. And he would invite the interns, the students, to parties. And the end of year party is coming around the the Christmas season. He has a, a holiday party at his house, Northern Virginia. There was about 50 interns in the... Washington, Maryland area. We get invited. My buddy from New York, from Columbia, Brian Barufi, was coming up. And he says, what are we going to do this week? And I said, I don't know, but let's start by going to the deputy administrator's party. And he looks at me, he says, well, that's not going to be fun. I said, Brian, you're missing the point. You're going to have a party. They're going to give us alcohol. They're going to give us food. It's going to be free. (laughs) <laughs> and then we can go from there to Georgetown. You really by. were
0: an intern. That's great. Yeah, yeah
1: I was an intern. I was looking for any way to get other people's food, right? Oh, yeah. And they're not going to notice. I said, you know, we're psychology background. We're, no one's going to pay any attention. So we get to the party. And there's food, nice food, beautiful house, all lit up. And you have a large part of the senior leadership of NASA there in the room. You have all the other students. Basically, the other students were all aerospace engineers. And again, I'm eating. I'm drinking. My wife jokes that if there's food there, I kind of go for it. You'll (laughs) and uh, enjoying myself. And all of a sudden, Dr. Mark stands in the center. And this was the era of the early 80s where the leader was often like the center of the light, you know, focuses on him. His leadership is sitting semicircled around him. The young folks are kind of in the other semicircle. And I hear him welcome us. He says, I want to all welcome you. You're the future of NASA. And we appreciate you being here. He said, I have one question. I see that there's like 30 of you are aerospace engineers, and I know why you're here. But I see this one student here who's social psychology, and I have no idea. Why do we need somebody from psychology? Can the student raise their hand? Do yeah. you wear like with a drumstick? In it. Oh, no, 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 ah. literally. I have food in my mouth. I'm trying to drink wine to get, I probably just, one time in my life, my body started just heating up instantly. I just started getting into ah, of like course, a, yeah, yeah. a panic attack. And so I raised my hand and said, I'm Ed Hoffman. I'm from Columbia University. I'm a doctoral student. And he said, well, why do we need you at NASA? And I said, well, I'm studying the characteristics of the most effective leaders. Because if you have effective leadership, it helps you in all the projects you're going to be doing. I was stunned. I looked back that I got out what I wanted to say. I always felt yeah, good about that. In that moment, for sure. And Hans... At that point, did something always remembered. And I saw that throughout my career with great leaders. He followed that up and he said, Well, I'm a leader. Can you improve me? I'm thinking, Great. I got, you know. And I was trained well enough at Columbia to answer a question that you can't answer with a question. So I basically say, Well, can you give me examples of what would you consider your best leadership behaviors or practices? Thinks about it for a second. What I like to do is I like to start the morning. I get in really early. And the night before, because I'm there, ladies, I'll write down little things on uh, notes and I'll leave it in all my senior leaders' desks so that the first thing when they walk in, they see my thoughts, they see the ideas, they see the things I want them to cover the next day. He said, do you think that makes me a good leader? And now his leaders are behind him doing thumbs down, you know, they're all, and I'm just figuring how am I going to get the language out? I said, well, I said, why do you do that? He said, I want them immediately to think about the goal And I want to have really strong communications with all of them so we can follow up on anything. I said, well, so what you're emphasizing is really good communications, a focus on what's most important priorities and, and goals. And that would be consistent with what we know good leaders do he says, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. And anyway, thank you. And then he, now I'm drenched. I am completely (laughs) drenched. It was like the Red Sea parted because the other students had separated from me, including my buddy, Brian. Yeah, yeah, of course. And now they're finally, and uh, I'm figuring okay, I'm going to have to go home because I'm just, and a few minutes after that, he welcomes everyone, starts walking up. He comes up to me. I'm thinking, okay, what's going to happen now? He said, I want to show you something. Come with me. So I go with him and Dr. Mark took me to his office. And it had all these spacecraft, present things, future things designed for their potential space station, military stuff. And and I was getting into it, you know, just geeking out. And he said to me, you know, my wife told me I may have been too hard on you. And I lied to him. So no, 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 not at all. And he said, but I was thinking about why do we need someone like you? But he says, you're absolutely right. The most important ingredient is leadership. And with the missions we have coming up, we need better leaders, and it's about the team. And so I really liked your answer. I thought it was really thoughtful, and I hope you have a wonderful career. And I walked away, and I thought I was just happy to get away. But I always remembered, here's a senior guy who followed up. He could have just left me out there, but he thanked me. And I always held on to that. The other thing I think he did, and I checked with him decades later when I held up with him, is I felt he was testing. And I think that he was looking to see, do you know why you're here? I always tell my students, I always tell leaders, you have to know why you're in a situation because someone's going to ask you. And I thought he tested just beautifully and he followed up and he communicated. I never forgot that.
0: That's such a fascinating insight as well. One of the things I often find as well when I'm working with teams is when you ask them like what their current focus is, most people can tell you what they're doing. Like, I'm doing this task. I'm building a mobile app. I'm working on this report. But they very rarely can tell you why. And they very never start with why they're there in that kind of an answer. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when yeah. you start to know, like, the people who really know why they're doing something. It's a very powerful what, yeah. mindset to have in the first instance. But it ties a lot to mission. And even, like, I can imagine, like, walking around... This office that's full of NASA paraphernalia, things like as a kid, like, you know, I'm sitting there going, wow, imagine what that room looked like. I was visualizing the room as you were describing it. Like, does that inspire you then even more to realize
1: that you had found a home there? I think so. I think I found a home the first day. I'm a very emotional person. And so I get into people. I mean, you can say my LinkedIn is people, people, people. My students hear me up. It's, It's about humans. The connection that we've been working together for a few years now, I think you're into the right things in terms of the people, the human connecting with experimentation, with lean, with learning. These are all things. So I like that kind of connection. But NASA from the first day, another funny story. So first day as an intern from Columbia is doing a six-month thing. So in those days, assume they still do it. You go through a security check-in.
0: Oh, yeah, of course, yeah.
1: And so I go to the security office, and I'm standing on a line. There was like half a dozen people in front of me, but I'm hearing all this laughter. I'm thinking, what is this? It's not holidays. I mean, it's is there a party? It was the summer, right? But it sounded like a party. There's this laughter. There's sound of joy. There's this happiness, and conversation. I keep getting a little bit closer, and then I get ready, and I see this woman, very right? heavy set woman, and she's smiling. She's loving what she's doing. And the only thing Barry, she was doing, she's taking people's fingers and she's fingerprinting them and rolling them, right, in those days. And I get up there and she takes my hand firmly and she starts taking my fingerprints. And she says, congratulations. I don't know where you came from, but you're at the greatest organization you can imagine. She said, we have a shuttle that's going to be flying this week. And that's one of the great things we're doing. I tell people on the bus that I take here, that I worked for NASA and we're putting shuttles up. In disp- and she had so much passion. She had so much energy. By the time she finished doing my fingerprints and taking the picture, I was like, I was just overwhelmed. But I remembered feeling this woman is so joyous. She is so happy about where she's working. And that a different person would be saying, I'm fingerprinting somebody. And they'd be seeing it as a kind of a boring kind of job. But I remember her joy. I remember thinking, this is a great place. This is a place of passion and meaning.
0: Well, you know, as you're telling that story, I'm thinking about the last office I walked into this week (laughs) where I had to go through security. And that's not a feeling people had. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like, again, an organization like NASA, it's such an aspirational and inspiring organization. And it's more its meaning, what it stands for. I think this idea of something bigger than ourselves, bigger than our countries, bigger than this planet, the exploring the uncertainty and future out there—it's the ultimate mission, surely. You know, and it's a
1: world mission too. I realize that I've been retired for a few years and I travel a lot.
0: Well, I know you're terrible at retiring. I think you've told me you retired about 50 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm
1: with Columbia and I'm with. Project Management Institute I work with. I do a lot of consulting, so I love what I'm doing. But from NASA, from that family, I've done other things. I go to all these different countries, and I'm stunned. I get thanked for working at NASA. But it's interesting. They don't think about it in many cases of this thing or a US thing. Uh, They see it as our thing. So I've been to Perth, Australia, right, totally on the other side of the world. And I've had people come up saying, thank you, we really like what you're doing with NASA or in China, I've been, or in India. And there's this sense that this is something humans do. So you can feel that. And it makes me
0: wonder, like, why can't we create that feeling? If more people were in work, regardless of whether they were helping people approve something better if they were really connected to mission like that, really believed in why they're doing what they're doing, the kind of things we could do and achieve are amazing. And I think that's sort of very unique about working there. And when were some of the moments that really hit home for you? What were some of the real
1: breakthroughs that you felt?
0: Because I know NASA had some challenges,
1: but I'm also... I I don't think it should be, though, unique. I know what you're saying, but I think I'm always asked in 30 seconds, you know, what works in an organization. My answer is, if you have really prepared, thoughtful, effective leaders who know what it means to be a leader, and if you put together teams of people who see themselves as part of that leadership, then that sense of meaning, then that sense of mission, then that sense of we're doing something that's contributing to the world, right? If you're in oil and gas, you're producing energy. If you're in pharmaceutical, you're making drugs for People for children. If you're in entertainment, then you're conveying emotions that mean things to people. So I think the best organizations, they convey that. I was at for some of the work I was doing a little over a year ago, I was at John Deere, right? John Deere. And you know, it's cool, cool company, but I didn't think that much about it. But I always ask for a tour when I go to these places. Again, I get into this stuff. And I was being given a tour of the John Deere location, the plant. And I had this guy who asked me, and I said, yeah, I've been at NASA. And he said, I've been to John Deere even longer for you. I've been here over 40 years. And he says, it's the greatest place on the planet to work. I said, you think it's better than NASA? And he says, well, I think it is better than NASA. And he gave me this tour, and he was so emotional. And you can see this is a person who he loved the work. He's talking about the different paints and the importance of safety and protecting people. He's saying hello to the different people. and I walked away realizing that it's not just because you're at NASA where it's special. If you work with people that you respect and care about, if you have a sense of purpose and meaning, if you have a place where your skills can be utilized and you're appreciated, then that's the same place. And whether it's NASA, John Deere, Volvo, Amazon, Boeing, you know, Department of Energy, I've met people who are in a special place. Because of those things. So I think it's leadership and teams that really drive that.
0: Uh, that's actually more inspiring to hear as much as anything that those places can exist. What were some of the things you think were important to help create though, that energy? What things did you have to do in NASA? Because I imagine you've lots of super smart people coming together, all different backgrounds, used to being number one, used to being leaders, like to show how bright they are. How do you turn those people into a high-performance team? What were some of the lessons you had to learn and
1: obviously unlearn along the way? The best leaders create the best teams and they're part of the best teams, right? And to me, I think it starts with the people aspect. So we're animals. And so whether you're wolves or whether you're birds, you come together, you form your communities, you look for things to build trust. And I think that what the best teams always had is they have an appreciation for who they work with. They have appreciation for what they're trying to produce, and they feel a sense of pride. So I think the starting point in terms of teams, I always get when I work with folks, I like to ask them, tell me a story about what makes you proud about being here. And it always surprises me how often people said we've never done that before.
0: That's really interesting and a great question to ask.
1: Yeah. So I I think that's the starting point. We have to appreciate I always said at NASA, make sure in your meeting, we have all these meetings, right? If you're working on something, everybody in that room should be contributing. That to me is that notion of the inclusion. So I think it starts with appreciation, gratitude. You know, we're lucky we're alive. We're doing cool things. I try to only work with people that I really enjoy and get positive energy out of. And I think that you can make those choices. And then I think that the second thing is what's the dream? Now, the dream may be called a mission. The dream may be the experiment. The dream is the thing, the goal that you're trying to attain. You want to have clarity and you want to have 110% commitment. So if I'm doing work with you, I should be able to say, Barry, I'm there. If something changes, I'm going to adapt. I'm going to support it. I'm going to respond to it. And then I think, then the management part, I think, comes in. That's the accountabilities. That's the roles. That's the sense we know how we're working off of each other. And I think mistake for most teams and organizations and leaders is that they, particularly the last generation of the Henry Ford era or the Taylorism, yeah. they start with the management of, okay, here's Barry, this is what you're going to do. Yeah. Here's your role. Here's your accountability. And then maybe they come back to the purpose and the meeting, and maybe then they get to why we appreciate you. It's totally backwards. So, but the best organ- the best teams in any place, they start with the people.
0: That's great. So I also want to ask you the flip side of some of these types of challenges, right? Like you've been in very difficult scenarios. I know you've been around during the Challenger and Columbia disasters at NASA, which are very public and very emotional moments for not just NASA, but the world in many ways. And they're sort of maybe a side effect of things working well or not well within the organization. What were some of your sort of key moments that you recognized as a result of those incidents? And how did you use that information to improve your
1: systems and the way you worked going forward? Yeah. So this always brings me back to one of the chapters in your unlearned book, which as you know, I love because I think that principle is vital and we can get to the reasons for the importance I think in learning. It's not just about learning. It's also, I think people feel appreciated and they feel alive and energized in the process of learning. But one of them was, I experienced Challenger, but then I was very close in terms of Columbia. You know, Columbia took place in a closer time frame. 2003. I was already heading up the NASA Academy, so I, I felt an investment there. And when you looked at what happened, and it's a danger, is that you had an organization that had been successful for many years. They had put up many shuttles. And so what happens? The tendency, as I see in a lot of organizations, is, okay, you can do more for less you can do it faster. Those goals are okay. But when the communications with the team get separated out, that's when the danger happens. And so what I saw in terms of Columbia was really good people, really smart people who had had a period of success under pressure to do things kind of faster. And the mistake being that we didn't talk to each other. And I don't think it was intentional, but when you don't talk to each other, that's the ultimate sign of disrespect. That's the lack of appreciation. That's the lack of inclusion. And so from, I think, past conversations, it's out there, the case studies, is we had all the data that what led to the Columbia failure, the shields coming off and the dangers. NASA had been studying it for several years. We had a situation where on launch, we had the debris that hit. And we ignored it. We didn't respond to it, and yet there were engineers there. There was, I think, Rodney Roca is one of the safety engineers who has gone through a lot of reflection on that. He raised the issue that we need to look at this. We need to discuss it. But there was a lack of communication. It led to a lack of collaboration. Led to less of a focus on teaming, and it led to a tragic situation. And what I'd always go back to is six years later, almost to the date, we had another shuttle launch discovery. It was 119. I happened to be invited there because we had the acting administrator was Chris galise great leader, wonderful friend. He said, I want you in the room to see how do we work together. The person heading that program at the time was Bill Gerstenmeier, one of the great, great leaders. They found out early that morning that on the previous mission, there was a problem with one of the valves. The other three operated fine. And you get into the question, do you launch or don't you? And what I watched over the next 10 hours was that there was a totally embracing of what people's views were, going around the room, talking to people who had retired, talking to industry, talking to the astronaut corps. I was asked, and I told you my background is, is psychology. psychology and, yeah. and Gerst said, Ed, what do you see? I said, Bill, I'm a psychologist. What do I disengage? He said, don't give me that BS. He said, you watched us, you see what's your feelings. There was a total exchange of ideas. The thing interesting, the difference between Columbia in 2003 and Discovery in 2009, largely the same people were in the room, yet we reacted differently. We reacted with communication, with collaboration, with engagement, with disagreement. And what I walked away with that moment, and I saw it in my career between successful missions and projects that failed, it was, again, that human ingredient of, you have smart people, you have the tools, you have the standards, you have the policy. You need to always improve those. But at the end of the day, it's that human ingredient of the permission, what Ed- Edmondson calls the psychological safety, to talk about anything. And I think that's what I that that's the most important thing. I saw.
0: Yeah, it's so powerful to hear stories like this in these kinds of contexts as well, and especially how teams have sort of adapted to that is very interesting to me. Like, I always think the quality of information that goes around your organization is the quality of decisions you end up making. Like, where do you look for perspectives? If it's only people at the top of the organization, often the people most removed from the problem, making decisions with what they think, poor quality, shallow information, versus these stories where you have people pulling information from the front line, from the engineering group, people past and present, their experience. Like that's a high learning environment, I think. And it doesn't happen very often in most organizations. We have these very naive systems of there's a few people at the top that make these decisions. They get information by reports that are sort of sanitized, floated up the organizations, reports that were red, turning amber, turning green, executives making, you would hope, good decisions, but bad information leading to poor results. And nobody seems to want to try and change that. Like It's very rare until you have these great innovations like HP's management by walking around or Getsu Gemba from Toyota, go and see these practices. And I ask so many leaders how often they spend time with customers, and I'm shocked. If you're lucky, you know you'll have a leadership team that might go and do a customer visit once a year, or maybe you've never sat in on a customer test, or... When's the last time they actually were a customer of their own business? Very rarely. You know, so how did you start to, like, encourage some of this information sharing? I know your knowledge program was key to that. What were some of the lessons you learned from bringing these, like, super smart people, big egos, and they've got to sort of be vulnerable with one another? How did you start to institute some
1: of that? It probably goes back, when I think about it again, but to your work on unlearning. For me, it started with me having to unlearn. So I'll give you another example. I came to NASA from Columbia. Great name, great school. People assume you're smart. Yeah, prestige all the way, yeah. And what I had in my favor was that I knew the things I didn't know. And in the work I was doing, there was a lot I didn't know. (laughs) Well, this is a huge skill as well, right? So what helped you get that? I One of the greatest turning points in my life, in my career, was... So the Challenger explodes in 1986. I was a young guy at at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, leadership development, supporting consulting teams, doing all the stuff. Shortly after that, they said, we want you to, in addition, to work on project management. And that makes sense to me. Shortly after that, I get a call from Washington that NASA wants to set up a program project management initiative, which would later become the NASA Academy. And I was told we would like you to interview for that job, which is kind of their way of saying we I was probably like 29, so you say stupid things when you're that young. Like yes. And no, (laughs) what I said the first time they called, I said, you people in Washington are as dumb as everyone in the field says you are. Why would you want someone I'm not an engineer. I don't know anything about project management. Why would you ask me to set up a project management kind of a... It would make sense if you wanted to set up a leadership program. And I think I flustered the person. His name was Dave Hornestay. Wonderful, wonderful person. And Dave, I think, got off the phone. But fortunately, thankfully, he called me the next day. He said, you know, we've talked about it. We'd really like you to apply for the setting up this project uh, learning initiative. I said, give me one good reason. And they said, look, if we hire someone who has expertise in engineering or projects... They're going to think that they know what it takes to be successful. They're going to try to force that on this diverse community, and they're going to get killed because NASA is a very decentralized. It's like a university in some ways. On the other hand, you spent your career here at NASA five years about learning, managing change, doing leadership development. You're going to have to listen to the engineers. You're going to have to learn from them. And from that, you're going to have to create something that supports their needs. And I thought that was the smartest answer I have ever gotten. I apologize to Dave. I said, I should have been smart enough to even comprehend that. And with great nervousness, I accepted that position and changed my life. And I think it turned out really well for NASA. But it was the unlearning, the ability to say, I'm willing to go to a place that I don't have expertise. I don't have the credentials And what I had to do is I had to have NASA people do my homework for me. So when we were setting up a project competency model, I couldn't go to a book. I interviewed like 56 of the project managers and asked them, what does it take to be effective at your job? And they told me. And they took the time to explain it in full colors because they were talking to Ed. He didn't have that natural knowledge. So I learned about, you have a question, you talk to smart people. They discuss it with you, and then you go back iteratively, right? And then you create something that's theirs. It's ours. And I had to do it that way because, again, I was not smart enough to know the field that they'd given me to work.
0: Well, what's so interesting about that story for me is how our expertise is such a blind spot for us. And I think when
1: you recognize that, that's a huge step forward. Well, it's the knowledge illusion. I don't know who termed it that way it's good to have expertise absolutely uh, but you can become deceived by thinking well Barry you know knows about your expertise so he has all the answers and where the answers are out there in the total community the most important thing i've learned about teams and leaders and people is knowledge is profoundly social it's about conversations it's about talking effective teams they socialize they eat they drink together And you have to take time. You have to create the space and the place to do that. And that's where I think the best teams take off is that they're naturally social and they learn from each other.
0: And I just love this idea, though, of for people who might not necessarily have these sort of opportunities, right? Like, how do they create them for themselves? Like, putting yourself in uncomfortable environments sometimes is important. Or putting yourself in situations where you actively have to learn, it's comfortable sometimes to stay within your expertise because you might know all the answers, but you know, good enough, but the sort of rate of your learning is probably plateauing at that point. And I think what's always interesting is putting yourself in some of these environments where you are uncomfortable and you are forced to ask more questions. You are forced to listen more and gather and synthesize this information. And in a sense, present it back to people for feedback as this is my working knowledge of the conversation I just had. Is that correct? So you're sort of essentially iterating, right? you think of your knowledge as a product, you're shipping it back to customers. They're giving you feedback on it. And you're like, oh, that's incorrect, right? I'll iterate it again. And that learning loop is a powerful mechanism for personal growth, product growth, team growth. And I think recognizing that it's probably intuitive to you to be like that. But I think people can make that intentional if they want to.
1: Yeah, I think that was my ultimate advantage. I didn't recognize it. Funny, kind of weird story. When I was in Colombia, well, we, we used to take different courses. One of the strange courses was a group dynamics course. And uh, it's where you sit around, and you talk and you get that. I've never been that comfortable just getting in touch with myself. That's why in psychology, I chose to go towards organizations. I like the logical, the safe. I didn't I didn't want to get into the whole clinical kind of thing. But I remember a woman saying, you know, you're like a beagle. And you're in your 20s. You don't want to be called a beagle. I mean, that's not a... And I said, what do you mean I'm a beagle? She says, oh, you know, you're cute. You're cuddly. You're affectionate. You're kind of like friendly. Everyone likes you and all that kind of stuff. And I hated that. But I look back so many times in my career, and I had people actually at NASA who joked me, you're like a beagle, Ed. We trust you and all that kind of stuff. And there's advantages to that kind of, I guess, beagle persona is that you have to be enjoying people. I told you earlier, I think one of my great advantages at NASA, and in general, when I work with technical firms, technical data folks, engineers, scientists, is I'm in awe of them. And in general, I like them. Because they're doing things that I can't understand. They may take it for granted because they've studied things. But to me, it's still wonderful magic. And so I think if you can enjoy people, if you can appreciate what you're doing, I mean, appreciating the conversation we're having. So I get into that flow. And I think that's what I recognized, that I didn't appreciate it myself in the earlier years. But that kind of style, I worked with people who didn't believe in a lot of stuff I was doing. That Apollo era The mentality was, you don't develop leadership. It's an act of God. But they would all talk to me. And I think they talked because they enjoyed the conversation, but they saw that I was gaining something. So we enjoy that.
0: Well, one of the superpowers I observe in you all the time is you create that space for people. Like, again, it's sort of intuitive to you. That's why I think it's like this superpower you don't even know you have. You make people want to share information with you, whether that's through stories I think you're great at sort of disarming people. And I think for people listening, like that's a great skill to cultivate in yourself is if you want to make great decisions, you need great information and making people feel comfortable to share the real information, not what they make me sound super smart, make Mm. me what really matters. And I think you're just great at drawing that out of people. And drawing it out of themselves, making them aware of that and seeing the benefits of actually sharing great information in a team and the team gets better. So I think there are some real skills for people to recognize here is if you can cultivate this environment that people feel safe, feel respected, feel heard, the quality of information you're going to get to make great decisions as a team just skyrockets as the performance was. And I think a lot of your work is testament to that.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. I think it's important to really be in tap with what you enjoy. I really love what I do. Now, I have times where, I mean, I'm working with a team where I've worked for a leader who I didn't like, and you have bad days, and why am I doing this? But in general, I've always been able to tap to an energy source. Again, I'm a kid from Brooklyn. And, you know, I'm here in San Francisco talking to Barry O'Reilly. I love your work. I'm amazed by it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of you talking to me. I spend time at NASA. I spend time, you know, I just have fun what I'm doing. I travel a lot. I do a lot of things. It's not work when you love something. And so I think one of the questions I always would ask NASA folks is how many of you really love what you're doing to the point where you take time to go to your child's or some other child's school and talk about it? And whenever I would see only three quarters of the hands, I'd say, what about the other folks? And then they would tell me about, oh, I don't like the manager. I'm not being used. Or I'd say, now, remember back to the day you walked into this place. How'd you feel? And we got to hold on to that. There's so many things going on in any kind of relationship. You can see why you shouldn't be happy, but you got to remember that that childish part of joy, the fun, the enjoying things. And uh, But then you also have to have that safe environment. Another moment of rapid unlearning for me was again, fairly early in my career, I had proposed designing a training course at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And the leader at that place was one of the great leaders, just emotionally, strategically, every aspect. His name was Noel Hinters, very respective and just one of the, the warmest, nicest people you'd ever see as a leader. And he was the center director. And I have an invite, he says, to tell him about the program and the design. What's it gonna look like? I'm feeling pretty good. And I go in there with everything designed. It's a nice training program, communications, all these good things. And he looks at it and he says, can I ask you a question? I said, of course. He said, if my people take this course, when they come out of it, will they know and be able to understand or predict if their projects are succeeding or failing? And I said, well, no, it's not going to, it's a about communicating. He said, the second thing is if they take this course and they're having a problem and they can predict that, will it allow them to change it, to go towards the solution? I said, no. And in my head, I'm thinking if I could do that, I would be selling that. And what I realized when I came out of that, he said, no, this is good. This is a nice course. He said, but what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think about how do we help our folks have the tools so that before something goes wrong, we can help them understand and see the signs of why something is not working. And second, how do we give them the tools and the capabilities to recover and to be successful? He says, if you come back with that, that's what I want. And again, that was another beautiful way of testing, but also of really mentoring, coming from the senior leader of this place. I mean, he could have I'm sure a lot of other people would say, hey, I don't need this. This is a waste of money and this doesn't make sense. I would have kind of walked away with my, but he so beautifully said, you've designed a wonderful course for yourself, Ed, that you like, but what I need were these two things, how to predict how we're doing and how to improve. And it was a wonderful moment. Again, that's another thing I always held. And I had thanked Noel years later. I worked with him on a different level. And I always said, you know, you messed me up. I used to joke with him. He said, what do you mean? I am up. He said, I really expected that all leaders at NASA were like you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the ability to, again, that on learning. I came in there thinking I had the answer. And I nicely was informed I didn't. And I never lost those two questions in terms of looking for solutions. They're just
0: such great questions to be given as feedback as well. Like, how do you know this is working? And regardless, how can people respond to that situation?
1: And that's why, you know, I love your work. When I first entered, it was the lean experimentation. We used that as one of the texts and the students loved it because I thought what you're doing and what your team is doing is looking at trying to answer those questions. And the unlearned continues that. So I think that's the initial kind of connection is I remember being the kid who's being asked, how do you predict? How do you experiment? How do you give them the tools to improve And your work? does that.
0: That's very kind and that means a lot to come from you, especially. But again, all these stories you share and you're so liberal with your learnings and the things that you have struggled with and improved. And I think these are all great, actionable things people can take away and apply. How many people really ask that question, even when they design anything that they're going in to do? How will I know if this is working or not? How do I set up sort of boundaries to know, am I going off course or on my on course? So few people just take the time to do that. They just start doing things. And I think the rigor of good experimentation is describing what success and maybe failure conditions or boundaries are and working towards them because you're never going to get all the results you perfectly want. And that then muscle of you need to build of responding to that. Like life is like that. It doesn't work out perfectly every time. But the people I think I've enjoyed working with the most are they give it their best shot, They get a result, positive, negative. They take that information, feed it into the next shot they're going to take. And it's a tough lesson for us all to learn. But I think it's such a powerful mechanism when you get it moving.
1: Well, it's scary. I mean, it's fear. There's a fear factor. One of the things, again, I've been really fortunate with the people I've worked, and certainly I got that at NASA. Overwhelmingly, I always felt that I was in a safe environment. And so I knew that I could fail. I couldn't fail in terms of you know doing something that would be completely destructive but i felt that i can take chances i felt i can do things that you know needed to be improved and to me there was always a feeling that the important thing was to take your chances to experiment right and from that you'll have those successes and take you to a new place and if you play it safe in that environment then you're not doing your job because you're staying where you are you're staying status and that means you're falling behind so but you have to have that environment you have to be with people and i think being with people having conversations even taking the time to do that can be scary because we're used to the old mindset of a job go back to the science fiction movies 100 years ago it's the factory and what they're and you know, i think of the tv show i love lucy and when she's doing the the candies and it's all about speed and doing things and it's not thinking and we're comfortable with showing activity I'm doing something, so it must be good. And it's much scarier to say, I'm not sure if this is the right way. Let's talk about it. Let's think. Let me ask you. And the successful teams that I've seen, they have that that ingredient where they're comfortable to talk to each other. And the teams that really mess up, that fail, usually it's hardworking people, but they don't trust the environment to ask, to change, to experiment. Be to, challenged. To be challenged. Yeah. Absolutely. Ed,
0: it's such a phenomenal fun talking to you. I feel like I could be here for hours, and uh, luckily I will, because we're going to hang out and have Absolutely. dinner. Absolutely, I'm looking
1: forward to the seafood, yeah. That's- but for yourself
0: then, what is some of the things you're excited about, or you're looking ahead to now?
1: What are some of the things that are sort of, you're curious and keeps you curious? So I've always been turned on by the future, I guess, because I think it gets better. I look back at the 1980s as when I entered the organization work scene. And I think now we are so much better. So it's easy to get frustrated with things that are not happening. But organizations more routinely, they have conversations with their people. Uh, they believe in participation. They try lean. They try experimentation. They're devoted to learning in a way I tell you was not the case in the early 80s the notions of learning and teaming and training was a very, very small amount. So to me, what excites me is that we've gotten a lot better doing a course for Columbia with our mutual friend, Jordan Sims, in terms of how do you navigate and prepare for the future of work? And really, to me, it's about the future of leadership in organizations. And so to me, it's an opportunity to look at what do we know about putting ourselves in positions where we can work together effectively. And I think it's looking at issues of people culture, what leads to teams being effective, the new kind of leadership, which is engagement oriented, which is conversations, which is trying things out, and the importance of knowledge, you know, not as an illusion where we just defer to an expert, but how it flows and the social aspects of it and the, the connection between people and technology. So this whole collective intelligence, collaborative intelligence. So that to me, has got me excited. So. Well,
0: I'm excited to see what you keep doing.
1: Hopefully we'll be working on these things together. I, I'm signed so, up. I'm right. sure
0: anyone listening to this podcast, don't be afraid to reach out to head. He's Absolutely. the best collaborator. Us, yeah. I know you're trying to retire. I'm sort of glad you suck at it because you keep bringing <laughs> yeah. all these great information <laughs> right. to us. But thank you for, again, all the things you've contributed to help me grow. It's been phenomenal to oh, just get to wonderful. know you. And I look forward to hopefully more many years of collaboration. And thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Love it, Barry.